dismissed to the best. Um, this week we're going to change things up a little bit and actually have our communion before our sharing time. In the next moments, we'll be sharing in communion together, celebrating new life that we have in Christ Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to partake of the bread and the cup. The deacons will be passing the bread and the cup. As you receive them, we ask you that you hold them until all have been served so we can partake together as a family. The table of the Lord is for all who believe, for all who have received Christ Jesus as Lord. We now invite you to come to this table, not because you must, but because you may. Come to testify, not that you're perfect, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciple. Come, not because you're strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on heaven's rewards, but because in your frailty, you stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help. Now that the supper of the Lord is before you, lift up your minds and hearts above all selfish fears and cares. Let this bread and this cup be to you the witness of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit. I'd like to invite up the deacons and Pastor Linda. blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for so loving us that you gave us your son. Lord Jesus, we thank you for so loving us that you freely, willingly, lovingly gave up yourself. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for revealing this truth to us. We thank you for now the blessing and opportunity to come before this table, and we do this until he comes again. But we do this in celebration of Jesus who has come, Jesus who died, Jesus who rose again, Jesus who's alive. Lord, join us as we go to your table. In your holy and precious name, amen.
Please join us now in a responsive reading before we partake. My sisters and brothers, this bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Take and eat this bread, remembering he was born to be our Savior. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Feed on him with your heart and be thankful. In the same way, after the supper, Jesus took the cup, which in the Jewish Passover feast is called the cup of blessing, and he told his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. We're so grateful, Lord, for the, the freedom from sin and punishment and death that we experience through your suffering and through your shed blood. We think this morning, Lord, of, of the wounds to your head and to your hands and to your feet and to your side. And we say thank you from the bottom of our hearts. We worship you and we love you. May our lives bring honor to you for this gift. In Jesus' name, amen.
Let's join together in the response. My brothers and sisters, this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Take this cup, remembering that he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it together and be thankful. While, while we finish collecting the cups, just wanted to say uh, welcome back to some folks from our church who have been gone for quite some time. Beatrice Quintero has been in Puerto Rico for many weeks, and the Campbell family has been in Ireland for the last month or so, six weeks, I think. Uh, so welcome back to both of you. Uh, it's good to have you back home with us, yeah. safely home. This morning's sermon will be a bit different than usual, with three of your pastors sharing in the message. Uh, we haven't done this before, and we'll likely never do it again, but uh, strap your seatbelts on for this morning. Um, I get to begin. Pastor Woody said I should tell you the theme. I didn't tell them the theme in the first <laughs> service. Uh, we're preaching this morning on um, women in ministry and leadership. Let's pray together. We thank you, Lord, once again for this opportunity, this privilege of being together here, worshiping you and hearing from your words. We pray that, um, that you would inspire us and touch our hearts and help us to hear you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The first woman known to have been ordained as a pastor in a BIC church in North America was Anna Crable Engel, who was ordained at a church in Kansas in 1921. Though her ordination was not included in ordination records beyond that local congregation. In the 1970s, the question of women serving in ministry was percolating in the church, likely before that time too, but definitely by the 70s and early 80s. Then in the spring of 1982, the Brethren in Christ held study conferences in the regional conference, in each regional conference regarding the question of women in ministry and leadership based on a paper that was jointly written by Grace Holland and Luke Kiefer Jr. That's our own Doris Kiefer's husband. Um, both Grace and Luke were both teaching at Ashland Seminary in Ohio, but before that time, Luke and Doris were part of Harrisburg Brethren in Christ Church. Then later that same year, 1982, the General Conference of the Brethren in Christ Church 
took formal action to, quote, affirm the ministry of women in the life and programs of the church, unquote, an action that was re-emphasized a decade later by the 1992 General Conference. It was just one year after this groundbreaking 1982 decision of the church to affirm the ministry of women in the life and programs of the church that I was hired by the Carlisle BIC Church, now known as Meeting House Carlisle, to lead their youth and young adult ministry, then later to, to lead their Christian education ministry. On my first Sunday at the church in September 1983, I met R.H. Wenger, who had pastored the church in his early years. When he met me, the first thing he said was, so you're the woman the church hired. That was my first hint that this really was a big deal. What I didn't know until after I had begun at the church was that there was no other woman serving in BIC congregations at that time. As I shared, I was not the first woman to serve, but in the fall of 1983, as far as I know, I was the only woman. Mary Jane Davis Fair began at Grantham Church in the spring of 1984, so then there were two of us. Sometime later, Martha Lady served at Messiah Village Church, Martha Starr and Martha Lockwood at Lancaster Brethren in Christ Church, and Harriet Bixler worked for the Board for Brotherhood Concerns. The six of us were the women that I know of who were working for the BIC Church here in the US by the late 1980s, and several women were serving in Canada. A friend pointed out to me a year or so ago that that means that I'm the longest serving woman in the Brethren in Christ Church, a thought that honestly had never, ever crossed my mind. Our, ch no, no, no. Our church sets a number of historic records. The first African-American pastor was Cedra Washington. The first, the first African-American ordained pastor was Hank Johnson. The longest serving single pastor at senior pastor that we know of is Woody Dalton. And perhaps somebody wants to take that on as a research project to make sure that we really are correct in saying that. And now, as far as I know, the longest serving woman. Plus, Pauline Pfeiffer was the first woman bishop in the Brethren in Christ Church, and she also was a member here at Harrisburg Church during those years that she served the Atlantic Conference. We have quite a church. <laughs> This morning, my part of our message was to share a little bit about the church's history and to share with you a little bit about my own personal calling to ministry. During my senior year of high school, 40 years ago, in 1978, my spiritual life deepened significantly. In that year, I preached my first sermon, which was terrifying and invigorating at the same time and has been terrifying and invigorating every time since, <laughs> including today. In addition to being very involved in my church's youth ministry, youth group, I asked, or maybe begged is a better word, the adults to let me attend their Bible study group as well. I had a hunger for God and his word that couldn't be satisfied. For instance, I'd ride my bike to my church in the next city and spend an afternoon in the library at the church. I think I was the only one to have used that room 
for decades. I think I was the only one in my church who even knew that there was a library in my church. It was a small room or a big closet, and Strong's exhaustive concordance became one of my best friends. Unknown to me at the time, this was my early preparation for what God was calling me to do. During that year of high school, in my psychology class one day, the teacher closed the book and asked us to share what we thought we were going to do in the future. What are you going to do when you grow up? My response surprised even me. I said I was going to be a pastor or a missionary. And my friends, many or most of whom were not committed Christians, confirmed that yes, this sounded right to them. My answer came as a surprise to me because really this was not what I was planning. I had been accepted at the Whittemore School of Business and Economics at the University of New Hampshire, and I was planning to continue my Spanish studies, which I had been studying for six years at that point, and I intended to pursue international business. I think I'm doing a different kind of international business. The inner compulsion for ministry was strong, and through my college years, the call to ministry was confirmed by many people. I had since transferred to Eastern University and received my degree in biblical studies there. The issue of calling was settled for me in my dorm room one night after hours of prayer and studying the scriptures. You see, I was leading a ministry on campus, and a new student who attended on this particular evening stood up and interrupted and told me I couldn't be leading. When I asked why, he said, because I was a woman. As I prayed and wrestled and wrestled some more through the troubling passages in my Bible that night, I told God several things. I told him I was willing to be silent, but that I couldn't be silent. And then I asked him, do you really want me to be silent? And I wondered if God had maybe made a mistake and put me in the wrong body. Then I read Acts 2, 17 to 18. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, will proclaim. And I sensed God's blessing on me, a woman, called to teach, preach, and proclaim his truth. As I shared in the fall of 1983, I began serving at the Carlisle BIC Church, and I've been serving in BIC churches since then, all except a couple years between assignments. This past spring, I was invited to reflect on those early years of ministry, as well as how I see things today, Um, in an article for the most recent issue of Shalom. I don't know if you ever read Shalom, but it's a quarterly publication that we put out. This past one is on reaffirming women in ministry, and there are copies of it available at the information desk, as well as some um, subscription forms if you're interested in subscribing and receiving it. It's a great publication. Um, It's also available, by the way, um, on the BIC website if you like the electronic version. I do want to say that I'm really grateful for my husband and my two sons and their support throughout these years. Craig was here in the first service. Um, My husband lived through those years 
when we attended the pastors and wives retreats, um, <laughs> thankfully now called ministry enrichment retreats. Thank you, Brethren in Christ Church, for catching up with us. Um, and I'm grateful uh, for the senior pastors like Albert Smith and Ken Hoke and Bob Ives and Terry Brensinger and Woody Dalton and soon-to-be senior pastor Hank Johnson and for the other staff and bishops who pushed open doors and paved the way for me and for many other women to answer God's call to ministry and to serve in ever-expanding ways. Today, it's amazing to say that more than 140 women are currently serving the Brethren in Christ Church in formal ministry positions within the church, and many, many more women are serving in leadership in our local churches. I'm thankful today for the privilege of being one of them. In 2017, 35 years after the church altering decision of the 1982 General Conference to affirm the ministry of women in the life and programs of the church, the church further formalized its position by publishing a Women in Ministry Leadership Statement, which can now be found on the BICUS website, and copies are also available um, at the back information desk of it. This document was co-authored, by the way, by Bishop Perry Engel and our church's own Anna Haggard. She's sitting right back there and endorsed by all of the leadership of the BIC Church. In the statement's conclusion, there are these words. In keeping with historic convictions of the Brethren in Christ Church and our desire to remain faithful to our understanding of scripture, the BICUS continues to fully recognize and support women in ministry and leadership at all levels of church life. We believe that the church truly does constitute God's new community, inaugurated by Christ, where both women and men are gifted and empowered for ministry so that together we may fulfill the calling upon each of our lives. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to read from Romans chapter 16. Paul's writing to the church at Rome and he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church of Sincrea, I asked you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets in their house. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. I think when you really take a look at the New Testament, you know, there's an argument of, well, did, did Paul oppose women in leadership? Did Paul ban women in leadership? I think the answer is pretty easy when you look at Romans chapter 16. 
because Paul here is talking about women in leadership and how the church should honor them. First, he says, Phoebe, a deacon. This word, if you want me to get angry, let me talk about the translators of this word. The word deacon is in the New Testament 22 times. And for about 350 years, the male translators translated, when it was a, the word a deacon was applied to a male, it was interpreted deacon. But when it was applied to the only female, Phoebe, it was translated servant. That is blatant male bias. If you're going to do the 21 men and call them deacons, Phoebe was a deacon too, Phoebe was an elder too, and Paul said honor her and do whatever she asked for in order to help her with her ministry. And then he says greet Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila were co-pastors of the church in their home. And in the Greek, by the way, they afforded honor or authority to the order of names. So even though Priscilla and Aquila were co-pastors, the fact that Priscilla's name comes first means she was probably the real head pastor between the two of them. And he says, they risked their lives for me. And all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. And then comes Junia. And again, it says, greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles. In the Greek, first of all, Junia is a female name, but to make sure you understood the gender assignments by the language in Greek, male names had male endings, female names had feminine endings. Junia is a female name with a female ending in the Greek. And for centuries and centuries, people went, Junia couldn't be a woman. And if you asked them, why couldn't a, a, a woman be an apostle? The answer was, because I can't conceive of a woman being an apostle. Therefore, even though Junia is a female name, without question, Junia couldn't have been a female. That is real sound scholarship, don't you think? Male bias has really infected the way we look at this. Not only that, but... So, so you have a female deacon or elder, you have a female pastor, and you have a female apostle. That sounds like leadership in the New Testament church to me. Not only that, there was Dorcas and Lydia, both businesswomen, both who opened their homes for church and who made significant financial contributions to the poor and to the leadership of the church. They were leaders in the church. There was Mary and Martha. Remember when they, they were hosting Jesus and Martha's running around kind of in a tizzy and Mary's sitting at his feet? We think that when, you know, we often miss the importance of this scripture because you see the importance was of Mary sitting at Jesus' feet was that in those days only a disciple got to sit at the feet of their rabbi. Mary was sitting where the men sit. She was sitting where the 12 apostles sit. And, G and, and when they rebuked, you know, you know, Jesus said and affirmed her sitting at his feet. And I'll throw a little bit more in here while I'm working at it. It says, Philip had seven daughters who were prophets in the New Testament church. That means not only did, were there seven daughters, we don't know their names, but not only did they foretell about what was to come, Prophets are forth tellers. In other words, they were preachers. Philip had seven daughters who preached, and the New Testament church acknowledged them and listened to them. 
Right there are 14 New Testament women in leadership. How could that have been missed for 350 years? Not only that, in the Old Testament there was Miriam, who plainly says Miriam was a prophet. There was Deborah, who was a judge. And there was Huldah, who was a prophet. How many of you know about Huldah? That, well, Hanko's going to tell you more about Huldah when he gets up here. Because she's been ignored far too long. Hank will enlighten you. Paul endorsed women in leadership. You cannot miss that. And, and no matter how you interpret scriptures that you think are anti-women, you have to look at how the New Testament church practiced. The New Te Testament church put women in leadership. Case closed. Now, I, uh, when I came to this church in 1980, by the way, the, you know, 38 years and Linda's the longest running woman, I'm the longest running, it means we're getting old. That's what that means. <laughs> and uh, when I first came here, see, I came, uh, I grew up in a Presbyterian church and I came from, from a Pentecostal church. And the liberal Presbyterian church I came from, they said, if God gives a woman a gift to preach and to be a pastor, who are we to stop her? So the Presbyterians, as a matter of fact, when I went to Union Theological Seminary to get my doctorate, the, the, the professor of homiletics, of preaching, was Elizabeth Ochtemeyer. And I want you to know, I have never heard a better preacher in my life than Elizabeth Ochtemeyer. She was, I've heard people preach as well, but I've never heard pre people preach better than her. And, of course, with the Pentecostals, their philosophy was, if God gives gifts to a woman, cut her loose and let her preach. And I have heard women Pentecostal preachers who brought it, who brought it and shook the room. And I figured, you know, if liberal Presbyterians and Pentecostals agree on something, it's got to be from Jesus. <laughs> but when I got to the Brethren in Christ Church, they were still debating it. It was never a debate with me. And so, you know, I believe that Jesus has some feelings. And I think that he thinks that if women have the gift to preach, and he gave them that gift, you ought to let them preach. That's what Jesus thinks. Because, you see, Jesus has this thing about burying talents. And he doesn't want half of the gifts of leadership he has given to his church to be buried in the ground because of male bias. Jesus does not like frozen assets. He wants them turned loose. And I will add this before I sit down. This church, in part, is the way it is because of women in leadership. Some of you may have heard of Sarah Burt. Sarah Burt was a little Brethren in Christ woman with the bonnet and the plain clothes and stuff. And she led a mission in inner city Chicago for 50 years. 50 years. They kept trying to replace her with men, but the men weren't tough enough to stick it out. So she kept getting it by default. She lasted 50 years there. She led a couple of orphan boys named Joel and Dave Carlson to Jesus. And when they grew up, they came to a city called Harrisburg. And Joel Carlson started a mission called the Lighthouse Mission over on the hill. By the way, it's a, you know where the Hess Station is on Cameron and Market? 
It was right up there on that hill. It's been torn down since because the hill eroded, but it used to be there. And that church evolved into the Bellevue Park Brethren in Christ Church, which was our old building. Some, some of you remember that old building. And then we merged with the old Messiah Mission congregation in 1978 and became the Harrisburg Brethren in Christ Church meeting now in this lovely garage. We are part of Sarah Burt's legacy. We have our DNA that goes all the way back into the 1800s in Chicago. And part of the reason we are here today is because Sarah Burt could stick it out when the men couldn't. It's always fun to follow that guy. Um, what I want to share this morning is kind of um, the evolution of my journey in support of women in ministry. It's a blessing and a privilege to be part of a church. In September, I'll be on staff for 10 years, which is wild. Um, but I bring that up because Pastor Woody as we shared, has been senior pastor for 38 years. And I don't know if, you know, Shell and I are going to give you 38 years. I hope you can still have us. Um, but even if you don't, we're going to be members here. And one of the reasons why is for the affirmation of women in ministry. We believe so strongly um, that we want to be part of a church that not only affirms, but follows Jesus in this way. I want to also begin by reading a verse that I think is a passage from Jesus that I think is really, really um, impactful for me because a lot of times when we talk about women in ministry, we want to debate, right? And I think Jesus' warning is always good. So this is Matthew 7, 15 to 20. Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit. But a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. One of the things I, I realized in my faith early on is it's not just about belief, it's about belief and practice. It's not just about faith, it's about faith and works. I grew up um, in a Plymouth Brethren Church, which was a very small denomination that didn't affirm women at all. In fact, I grew up memorizing all those passages that we now call problematic, but I called scripture back then, that said women were to be silent. To this point where people who now tell me women should be silent, I tell them I know your scriptures better than you do, because I grew up on it. And I, I used to think, um, before this week actually, that it was this Plymouth Brethren upbringing where for every Sunday from about 9 to 21, we focused on Jesus. And we talked about who Jesus is, what did he say to us that week, and I thought that's what made me an Anabaptist. But in thinking about my own journey in affirming women in ministry, I realized that, no, it was the woman who raised me. Because you see, before we went to church, we had church. We had family devotions every Sunday morning. And I remember when I would talk to my friends, they'd be like, wait, let me get this right. You went to church before church? And they thought that was wild. And what was wild to me is new to America was that American kids had this thing called opinions. You know, American kids had this thing where they thought they can tell their parents what to do and, and like their voice even mattered, right? They, they thought it was wild we had church before church. And I used to look at them as like, what is wrong with these children? But what I loved about what we did every Sunday morning is that I learned from a very early age that my faith was supposed to be communal. 
that it wasn't just about me and Jesus, that every week I was supposed to have something that God taught me for us. Every week I was supposed to memorize scripture and share what it meant to me and what I was learning that God was doing. And every week I was meant to hear from my sisters and brothers what God was doing. I thought the Plymouth Brethren made me by default an Anabaptist, and I realized it was the woman who raised me. Because every week she asked me, who is Jesus? What did he say to you this week? I was also reminded of my Sunday school teacher, Carolyn, who was fresh from college. And it was funny because in this Plymouth Brethren Church, you know, we didn't affirm women in leadership, but yet women led us all the time. And Carolyn was my Sunday school teacher. And what I love about her is not just that she loved us, but she was the first one to let me run wild with scripture. I don't know if you know this, but I, I always have questions, you know. And she was the first one who allowed me to put myself into the story. She was the first one who affirmed me when I said, it's not a miracle that Jesus walked on water. Jesus was God. Peter, that's the miracle. She was the first one that says, that's a good point. And I remember her all these years later because she affirmed in me that God was saying something to me and that's okay. And that it's okay to put myself into the story if it helps me believe. I thought about Betty Ann, who for years, you know, it's funny because for my kids, she's like their great grandmother. And what's hilarious about Betty Ann is they're a, a suburban couple from Westchester. And all of us, they would come to um, Philadelphia and pick us up and take us to church. And what's fascinating about it is her husband's name is Tom. And for years, we called him Uncle Tom until we got to college. And until we got to high school, we're like, ooh, this is weird. <laughs> But what I love about Betty Ann is that her character mattered. And what I loved about her is that she was actually the one who at 14 years old said to her husband, that boy needs to preach. She was the one who for every single Christmas was the one who I, I, I got to see what Jesus' love looks like. I'm grateful for her all these years later because all the gifts I thought I had, she gave me opportunities to use them. And I also love that her character matters. And I told this story, and someone shared a similar story. But I remember um, one time, you know, we're running around for errands for church, and we're going through her neighborhood, and we were running behind, you know, and she was speeding. And I remember sitting there like, oh, she's speeding. And I remember we ran a stop sign. We got pulled over. And I remember sitting there thinking, ooh, this is going to be good. Like, what, like, what is she going to do, you know? And I remember being struck by the two things. One was that the police officer recognized who she was right away. Because he had remembered that for years, she's been in this neighborhood, she's been serving kids, and he was one of the kids she welcomed into the church. And I remember this fascinating debate between the two of them, where she's fighting for him to give him the ticket, because she was like, I was running, I was going too fast. And I remember sitting there as a kid like, let him give you grace. Like, <laughs> it's okay to not get this ticket, you know? And I remember, at first I thought, like, maybe she's putting on a show. And then the more they kept going, I'm like, no, she's serious. She really wants this ticket. And for the life of him, he just couldn't do it because all he could remember looking down at her was she was one of the first women that invested in him and taught him what God looks like. And I brought up all these women because even though I grew up in a church that didn't affirm women in ministry, God always had these cracks. And it wasn't until, you know, when I was in high school, my mom was visiting our Plymouth Brethren Church, and we had this service where for an hour we talked about Jesus. And I remember everyone was waxing poetic, and by everyone I mean the men, were waxing poetic about who Jesus is, and it was great. And she didn't know any better, my mom, so she got up and was like, this is what Jesus said to me this week. And I remember her, like, talking, and it was really good. But I remember everyone was tense, except we, the children. We loved it. We were like, oh, this is great. What are they going to do now? <laughs> and I remember college when I had a roommate from Texas, and this was probably the final crack. I remember talking to him one time, and, then, and, and he was talking about how his grandmother was a pastor, and I was like, 
how is that possible? Like, how is she a pastor? That's not even the Bible. And I remember my friend with that Texas twinkle in his eye says, Hank, you know, you know a lot about the Bible. And it sounds terrible, but I've been praying for three years to have something on you when it comes to Scripture. And I finally got it. But, brother, you got this one wrong. And I remember he said to me, look at her fruit that she's done. And part of that fruit is me. And I remember the last one was my, my, my uh, landlord who became my sister, Melinda, one of my, our family's best friends. And I remember her saying, you know, Hank, you talk about how you're wrestling with women in ministry. But one of the things I realized is that God's got his hand on you. But God has used women every step of your journey to make you who you are. And I remember that changed me. And that was before I came to this church. And I love this church because at this church, we don't just believe, we don't just walk in the privilege, we allow women to serve. And I stand to you before you this day because I've been blessed by so many ministries. I'm grateful for Pastor Cedra. I thought I loved my community until I saw her love the community. I'm grateful for Pastor Linda. I thought I loved the church until I saw her love the church. Grateful for Patty because I thought I loved kids and now I know I only love my kids, really. (laughs) Diapers will change you, man. But I thought I loved kids until I met Patty, and Patty loves kids. I'm grateful for Sheila, who's helping us think in ways that we haven't necessarily thought before. And I'm grateful for all her gifts that she brings to her church. I'm grateful for Carmen, who's now getting into our community in much deeper and richer ways. I'm grateful for their practice. Because while God was working on me and my theology and putting these women in my life, I'm grateful that I got to see them do the work. So I stand before you today. What do I believe about women in ministry? I believe in God the Father, who when he first created us, he called women Ezer. You know, in our English translation, we call it helper. And that's such a terrible translation, because in English, the nuance there is that I'm in charge, Adam's in charge, and Eve was just there to help him. Yet every single time the word Ezer is used in the Old Testament, it's used for God himself. We don't necessarily think of God as our assistant, do we? When David says, I lift my eyes up to the mountains, where does my Ezra come from? He's not looking for an assistant. He's looking for help. God created us good. In his eyes, we were created good. And when he created men and women, I love the Brethren in Christ statement of women in ministry. And I've emailed Alan. Hopefully you could join me in emailing. And I'm glad you're here. Maybe we can work on the edit. But I think we missed one thing. I think we started too far. We need to go back to Genesis, how we were created. Because when God created men and women, he says, together we are in the image of God. He created women not just equal, but as co-regents, as co-rulers. He created and equipped them with every single gift. We got to go back to the beginning because our sisters are Ezers. And I believe in Jesus and how he treated women. When you look at the scripture, you realize that Jesus didn't just uplift women. He honored them. And you realize in his life, you know, there's a famous pastor. Jesus goes in and flipped the tables. And for years, I thought that was amazing because God's flipping tables. Then I learned that it was because this was oppression that was happening to people and keeping them from God by having to pay X, Y, and Z before they can come to the temple and worship. But when I got to seminary, I had a professor that says, but you know what's even more amazing than that, Hank, is that Jesus walked through the Holda gates. And I was like, well, first of all, who's Holda? What I learned that Holda is a woman for today, because you see, her husband was the fashion designer. She was the preacher. 
And there was, a, there was a scripture that had been found by one of the Israelite kings, and no one could interpret it. And they bring it to Holda, and she interprets the scripture. And she says, you know what, King Josiah? God has heard your prayer. You've been faithful. He's heard your prayer. Yes, Jerusalem will fall, but if you're faithful to God, he will bless you. And that ministry of Holda was so impactful on Israel that when they graded, when they built the temple, there were four gates on that temple. And of the four gates, when Jesus walked in to flip the temple to let everyone in, he walked through who Holder's gates. You need to know who Holder is because Jesus knew who Holder is. And the last one is the Spirit. The Spirit blesses the church with every good gift. I start off saying they will know us by our fruit. And what I love about this church and what we're saying to you this morning is that by the fruit we have been blessed, by the fruit we have been privileged to walk in obedience to the Lord, and by our sisters. We have been pastors, we have been led, we've been prayed for, and we have done this kingdom road together. Amen? And it's not just for missionaries. Some of you may be teachers, and you're teaching in, in kids with special needs because you believe Jesus has called you to minister to kids with special needs. Some of you may be nurses or doctors, studying to be doctors, and you're doing it not because it's a job or a profession to you. It is a calling to you, and you are there because Jesus wants you there. It can be any kind of calling. It could be maybe you're a therapist and you are a Christian therapist and you are ministering in the name of Jesus to help broken people. And, and things I haven't, you know, I, in the first service I talked about Mary Lou and Anna. They're, they are the high priestesses of prayer in this place. And I'm quite certain uh, my, my three sons who are Devoted Christians would not be devoted Christians without those two women praying them into the kingdom. I'd given up. No, I'm kidding. I <laughs> but, again, if you have a calling, or you think you have a calling, or you've been walking in a calling, and you're a woman, please come forward now. In the first service, this happened too. And, you know, men, shove your woman out and get them up here. By the way, I would, have, I would have applied this to mothers, but if I applied this, and, and being a, a Christian mother is a calling too, but I just didn't think we'd have room up here if I called all the mothers up. So we're not dismissing you. We're just trying to be practical here. So let's pray. And hold your hands out towards them again. Lord Jesus, thank you for these wonderful women on whom your hands are resting. Thank you for the calling on their life. Lord, they have made such a difference in this church. They have made such a difference in this community. They have made such a difference in the kingdom of God. Thank you, Lord, for every woman standing up here. Lord, I pray 
that if there's someone struggling with whether they are called or not, clarify it for them. Clarify their calling. And Lord, I pray that your spirit is increased in every one of them. I pray, Lord Jesus, that through them, there is an anointing that is felt that you, you said in one passage of Scripture that people catch, wherever we go, people catch a scent of Jesus. Wherever they go, may they catch a scent of Jesus coming from these women. Lord, we thank you for the gifts, many gifts, wonderful gifts. Lord, use them. Use them powerfully. Lord, we just want to say that we would not be where we are. We heard Hank's testimony, but it's true for all of us. Lord, thank goodness the gifts standing here were not buried. Thank goodness the gifts that are among us were not frozen. We bless, Lord, in your name, we bless these women who are following you in not only into the church, but into the world and building the kingdom. Bless them and keep on blessing them and use them. And Lord, may they feel not only your support, but our support as they walk day by day and honor you and honor the gifts you gave them and the calling upon them. In Jesus' name. And Christ's body says to that, amen and amen. Would you show your affirmation for these women? God bless you. You may be seated. At this time, we're going to have a final song. I would invite.